Good morning, my name is Jim. I'm one of the elders here. Let's give our hearts and minds to the reading of God's word. I'll be reading from 1 Peter chapter 3 from the English Standard Version. Likewise, wives, be subject to your own husbands so that even if some do not obey the word, they may be won without a word by the conduct of their wives when they see your respectful and pure conduct. Do not let your adorning be external, the braiding of hair and the putting on of gold jewelry or the clothing you wear, but let your adorning be the hidden person of the heart and the imperishable beauty of a gentle and quiet spirit, which in God's sight is very precious. For this is how the holy women who hoped in God used to adorn themselves by submitting to their own husbands as Sarah obeyed Abraham, calling him Lord, and you are her children if you do good and do not fear anything that is frightening. Likewise, husbands, live with your wives in an understanding way, showing honor to the woman as the weaker vessel, since they are heirs with you of the grace of life so that your prayers may not be hindered. Finally, all of you have unity of mind, sympathy, brotherly love, a tender heart, and a humble mind. Do not repay evil for evil or reviling for reviling, but on the contrary, bless. For to this you were called that you may obtain a blessing. For whoever desires to love life and see good days, let him keep his tongue from evil and his lips from speaking deceit. Let him turn away from evil and do good. Let him seek peace and pursue it. For the eyes of the Lord are on the righteous, and his ears are open to their prayer. But the face of the Lord is against those who do evil. Now, who is there to harm you if you are zealous for what is good? But even if you should suffer for righteousness' sake, you will be blessed. Have no fear of them, nor be troubled, but in your hearts honor Christ the Lord as holy, always being prepared to make a defense to anyone who asks you for a reason for the hope that is in you. Yet do it with gentleness and respect, having a good conscience so that when you are slandered, those who revile your good behavior in Christ may be put to shame. For it is better to suffer for doing good, if that should be God's will, than for doing evil, for Christ also suffered once for sins, the righteous for the unrighteous, that he might bring us to God, being put to death in the flesh, but made alive in the spirit in which he went and proclaimed to the spirits in prison because they formerly did not obey when God's patience waited in the days of Noah while the ark was being prepared in which a few, that is eight persons, were brought safely through water. Baptism, which corresponds to this, now saves you not as a removal of dirt from the body, but as an appeal to God for a good conscience to the resurrection of Jesus Christ, who has gone into heaven and is at the right hand of God with angels, authorities, and powers having been subjected to him. May God bless his word in the lives of each one of us. Better fasten your seatbelts in today. <laughs> it's uh, yeah, we're uh, we're gonna we're gonna hit it heavy and hard with, with the trust that the Lord has uh, given us His Word purposefully. That that every every letter written on the pages of the book uh, from Genesis to Revelation is intentional for those of us who are followers of Christ, or even just to display to the world the character and the nature of God. So I want to start off a bit by uh, telling you a bit of a, a folklore story that I learned when I was in India. Years ago, I went to India to do missions work. 
um, with one a really close friend of mine, and we were teaching and training pastors. Here's the story, or at least the story as it was told to me. It's a young little boy who's traveling the streets of his village, and he's known for being the marble player amongst his friends. He's taken numerous marbles from his friends in numerous different ways through consistently winning, and he, he always has that, uh, that final trump card in his pocket, that marble that wins all games. It's this blue marble that has got a few chinks and cracks in it, but he knows how to predict how it's going to spin and where it's going to go, and so he's able to win all of these marble matches, if you will, by pulling out the blue marble. One day, as he's walking through the village, he comes across a young girl, and she is eating chocolate. Now, this young boy knows that marbles are his life, but chocolate comes in a close second. And so he begins to think about options that are availed to him and how he can get this young girl's chocolate. Winning a marble match doesn't seem like the way to go, so he just goes over and says, hey, will you trade me all of your chocolate for all of my marbles? She says, sure, that seems like a good trade. So he sticks his hand in his pocket and begins to move it around, looking for that one blue marble that he knows he is not willing to give up And he wants to shove it to the bottom of the pile because he he knows it's little cracks and chinks and he knows that he can preserve that one marble and give all the other ones up and then he can win his marbles back some other day. He shoves his finger in there and is able to get the blue marble down to the bottom of his pocket, get all the other marbles out and they make the trade. He begins to walk away enjoying the spoils of victory and eating this chocolate. And then instantly it hits him looks back at the girl and says, hey, did you give me all of your chocolates? (laughs) That may be the same sinister desire to, to withhold things she had inside of her heart as well. And so he maintained the thought that just maybe, maybe she was holding out on him too, that somehow in some way, whatever he would withhold from her, she could have made that same decision. I'm gonna do that this morning. I'm going to pull out that blue marble, and we're going to look at it from a variety of different vantage points, but I'm going to name it for each of us this morning, and then we're going to gaze into it and see how the Lord uses that thing that we hold on to as a way to to hold on to our, our own desires, our own longings, our own hopes, whatever it is, and I'm going to call it sinful independence. That literally what, what the Lord has been doing through the context of First Peter is, is addressing issues of, of suffering and how we live differently in a world for, for these followers of Christ that seems to be falling apart at a rapid clip. But in the process of the suffering, one of the things that really gets to be addressed in the context of their life is how they're growing in intimacy with Jesus. And Peter, inspired by the Holy Spirit, is relentless in beginning to pull back those areas, or if, if you will, pull out those blue marbles that we, we hold onto desperately, 
thinking that if we just were able to maintain this, then everything else we could lose and it would be okay. Jesus, through the ministry of, through his ministry, which we're going to see as, as we see the fixed point of the cross that Peter's going to continue to refer to, begins to move us away from that sinful independence. Why? Because independence shuns submission. <laughs> hey, there's something in us when we read these texts, First Peter chapter 2 and talking about how we understand the government and how we understand the, our bosses and now even how we understand marriage, there's something in us that has a level of aversion even to the word su- submission. And so before I begin of unpackaging this text, I want to move us back and remind us of something that's critical that we need to have before us. Submission is a posture of every believer as they grow in Christ. This is something that the Lord develops in all of us. And so for these believers, as they're wrestling with the truth of God's word and all of the the challenges of what God is doing and and trying to even understand their circumstances and Peter's call for them to live differently because of the, the potency of grace in their life, there's something significant, some source of change, some some letting go of that blue marble that's absolutely critical as we move forward. And Peter's going to tell us why. So submission is a posture for every believer as we grow in our relationship with Christ. Here's what's taking place. Last week, Jared did an amazing job talking about the, the challenges we face as we're submitting to unjust governments and unfair bosses. Let me just lay out the roadmap for us this morning. There are three areas that tend to highlight the reality of us struggling with our own sinful independence that are areas where God is really calling us to grow and transform us. One, how you follow or how you live in the midst of unjust rulers over you. How you live in the midst of unfair bosses and how you live with unbelieving spouses. Those are kind of the three areas that he starts to really target and address. And why would that be so significant? So imagine for a moment, you're a follower of Christ. You just came to faith in Jesus Christ and the reality of what he's done on the cross for your sins. And now there's persecution that's mounting. And Christians are being cut off and criticized and persecuted in innumerable ways just because of their faith. And here are the questions that I think surface because of the suffering that they're facing. Faith is the transfer of allegiance. So here's the question. If my faith, my transfer of allegiance is in a new king, how do I serve the former one? If Jesus is my king, how am I called to operate in a world where they don't recognize Jesus as king? How am I called to, to serve and live in that context where, where there's an earthly king, but I, I serve a heavenly one? What's my role? What does that look like? How do I live and function in a work environment, if you will, where I live in the midst of an unfair, unjust system? My boss is critical and mean and maybe even at times abusive to me. What do I do in that environment now that my allegiance has changed? I serve a different master. My ownership has been transferred to him. How do I live in the midst of an environment where... My, the longings and the satisfaction of my soul is no longer met in my partner. The satisfaction of my soul is met in Christ alone. 
Those are questions that would be somewhat peering as they, they wrestle with how to live their lives now that their allegiance has changed to Christ and Christ alone. And so we're going to move into the conversation about husbands and wives and marriage and, and I hope deal with it faithfully and delicately. But I need to take a break for just a second because I know that many of you have navigated the trauma of spousal abuse. And I would want to tell you now that as the Bible unfolds the idea and the heart behind submission, it is not even remotely suggesting that that is an environment in which you're just supposed to live. Don't just take these things, that there's uh, authorities and people that want to come alongside and help, that it's not something that's condoning or accepting those types of things. That is not okay for, for someone, specifically Amanda, to utilize or leverage some sort of power to get his way. That is not the context of this text. And so what I want to give you is a few things that submission is not. And I know that I have to be very clear here, and I want to be also clear and faithful. So submission is not going along with sin. It's already addressed that in the context of 1 Peter chapter 2 earlier, in the sense that we've seen it make its way numerous times. The, the prophet Daniel uh, was told not to pray. He prayed anyway and faced the consequences of that, that reality, those, those temporal consequences. But there's a sense in which what we're realizing is that we're not attaching our lives to this blanket sense of submission where we're going along with what would be sinful. That's not submission as the Bible talks about it. Submission does not mean agreement on everything. Praise God, right? That there's just that sense where it's not sort of this sense that all of a sudden, just because I'm, I'm doing these things, that I agree with everything that's taking place. That's not biblical submission. Submission does not mean you can't or shouldn't think for yourself. We're going to get into the text in a minute, but I want to make sure that we have these categories before we begin. Submission does not mean giving up on your desires for your spouse to change. And here's how I know that to be the case. We're talking about this sense as, as Peter's unfolding this very significant reality of how we live differently, the specifically in the midst of Christian homes, that he's talking to a, a woman who's married to likely an unbelieving spouse. And of course, wouldn't she want her spouse to change? To come to faith in Jesus Christ? Right? That's the motive for all of these things is that if the fixed point of our lives is the cross, the death and resurrection of Jesus Christ, then what we're saying ultimately is that that's what we desire most of all. From government officials who are doing whatever they want and persecuting Christians, our deepest desire is what? That they stop or that they come to faith in Jesus Christ. And by extension then, obviously would stop. But we're caring about the eternal state of their souls before we're caring about the temporary realities of what's taking place. Submission doesn't mean that we're not hoping that our spouses won't change. Submission is not putting the will of the husband before the will of Christ. And submission does not mean that all spiritual strength comes from the husband. Okay, <laughs> let's dig in because we gotta, I got to rely on the word and not my own thoughts. 
So let's jump into chapter 3, and I just want to read this section for us really quickly. And I think they're all tied together. So, so it's, it's, again, what I want to remind us of is, is our blue marble. This sinful independence that exists inside of our hearts in such a way that we want to hold on to something because we feel like we want to be able to make our own decisions and do our own thing. And, and submission is a, an attitude and a posture that he calls, that all Christ followers are called to. And so in the context of those things, here he says, likewise, right? Chapter 3, verse 1, first word, likewise. He's drawing us back to the same pattern and posture that Jared preached about last week. That what we're realizing is that our conduct is evangelistic. How we live and how we operate in a world is uniquely different than what our flesh would want us to do or what the world around us is doing. There's a sense in which because Jesus, the cross of Jesus Christ, his death and resurrection is our fixed point, it is that which we see everything through. Because Jesus died for the the sake of sin-sick sinners, then that means that there are sinners around my life even in the upper echelons of government, that deeply need Jesus? Is my response to pray for their salvation or pray that they get removed from office? You see, you see what I mean? Like it's, it's elevating the status of a person's position before Christ. That's our fixed point. That's where the Lord is leading us. And so he says, likewise, wives be subject to your own husbands so that even if some don't obey the word, aren't followers of God, They may be won without a word by the conduct of their wives. When they see your respectful and pure conduct, do not let your adorning be external, the braiding of hair, the putting on of gold jewelry, gold jewelry or clothing, but letting your adorning be the the hidden person of the heart, which the imperishable beauty of a gentle and quiet spirit in which God's sight is very precious. And so here's what he's talking about. He's not talking about the fact that we shouldn't braid our hair. That's not what he's saying. He's not saying don't put on makeup. He's not saying any of those things. What he's communicating is he's giving us a contrast of what matters most. He's laying out before us what's most valuable. And he's saying that in the context of those things, all of the effort to win your husband isn't going to be done because of the beauty externally. It's because of the deep, deep work of Jesus internally. That there's such a an elevation and a glorification of a person's walk with the Lord that becomes a place of realizing that something's different in their lives and their, their conduct, their actions, their, their hope is in something different. And because of that, there's a drawing to say, hey, what's going on inside of you that I don't have? That's the crux. That's the challenge that he's leading these young women to in, in moving towards their husbands as they're passionately pursuing Jesus. So he's saying, look, the focus of just what the Lord is doing in your heart and the, the hope, remember, faith is your changing of your allegiance. Your, your hope is in Christ. Jared said last week, your hope is in heaven. We aren't citizens of this world. Our hope is not in temporal outcomes, but eternal realities. And he, the, the, the only two things that exist eternally are, are the word of God and the souls of men. So the investment is in where a person is at in their relationship with Christ, if the cross is that fixed point. So we we look at that blue marble of sinful independence, and we say this certainly has to be a challenging call placed on the home front. (laughs) 
that we move into these places of valuing how an individual is walking with Jesus and that becomes determinative of how we make decisions and how we love them. So he tells us in verse 5, For this is how holy women who hoped in God used to adorn themselves by submitting to their own husbands. And then he uses the example of Sarah, obeyed Abraham, calling him Lord, and you are her children if you do, uh, if you do good and do not fear anything that is frightening. It's a pretty interesting little, little, little verb there, little, little sentence. If you don't fear anything that is frightening. What is, what is Peter doing, inspired by the Holy Spirit, to enable and call out the, the potency of the work of grace in these women's lives? He's calling them to be fearless. Do we see that this isn't a, a removal of their value and dignity? It's actually just the opposite. In the day and age in which Peter is writing, first century, there is so much of a reality of how women were treated that has a bearing on this text. Women were property. It was ownership. They were used in numerous different ways to be able to move up the social status of their husbands. They were undervalued, unseen, and not dignified at all. The gospel comes in and changes it all. The significance of elevating these women and communicating the significance of the work of Christ in their lives and what that means to to live a life in such a way that they're adorning the reality of Jesus in their hearts. And in so they're living fearlessly. Like they're, they're seeing the fixed point of Jesus Christ as the most significant and substantive thing of how they make decisions. And in so doing, they're moving towards thinking about how their husband can grow in Christ or come to faith in Christ. And so then he moves to probably one of the more controversial portions of this text. Um, He he moves to to husbands. And it's critical for husbands to hear this as well because it begins to, to set a pattern of understanding what leadership and mutual submission looks like. Likewise, husbands, live with your wives in an understanding way, showing honor to the woman. (laughs) You can circle it if you want, just for funsies. As the weaker vessel. Okay, so this is where... Like, I live in a home of three women, so I have to make sure I explain what the Bible says really well here. Since they are heirs with you of the grace so that your prayers may not be hindered. I think the essence of this text is he's moving towards... Uh, husbands understanding how the gospel of grace works itself out in their lives, how, how godly men live differently, is, is I would use the term cherish. And what they've done is that, that there's this sense of placing a, an incredible amount of value on the spouse that the Lord has given you to generate a sense of, of carefulness and protectedness and and a cherishing and a loving that is so significant that begins to fan in the flame their desires for Jesus Christ. The weaker vessel likely back then just probably meant that typically, and this isn't the case anymore, but typically men were stronger physically wise. This isn't a a sense of a a lack of dignity or a, a spiritual weakness or an undervaluing of those things. What he's calling out in these men is to say, look, you look at your wives 
And as you move towards loving and cherishing them, you're not using heavy-handed work to tell them what to do so that you can get your way because that would be the blue marble all over again. Would it not? Right? If you have this heavy-handed man that just says, it's got to be my way or the highway, sinful independence, right? But we submit ourselves to Christ and realizing that that's our fixed point. And so what we're saying is, We want to lead our homes towards intimacy with Jesus Christ by cherishing and valuing what God values. And you know what God values? The spouse that you're telling needs to do better and do more, right? That he has dignity and care and love and value for this woman that is a part of your life. So in the process of those things, we value what God values. We love what God loves. So in moving into that conversation, he begins to communicate to us that submission ultimately at the end of the day is gospel-centered freedom to live as servants seeking the salvation of those we serve now keep that up there because i think i'm going to give you time to write it down just in case you haven't yet submission is gospel-centered freedom to live as servants seeking the salvation of those we serve here's what god prioritizes where are people's place and status with jesus we deal with innumerable sins we see it on our television screen we see it from the oval office to the kitchen table do we not it's everywhere and the point of the radical grace of jesus christ is that we aren't bound by handling sin based on the world's standards. Punishment, consequences. What Jesus is going to move us into, actually Peter's going to move us into, through the understanding of Christ, is that there is a different fixed point that the world would use. You make a bad decision, you pay a consequence. What we have now, or what he's moving us into, is the reality of we have this, this cross that stands as a fixed point, and that fixed point says, yes, sin always has consequences innumerable consequences. We're at enmity with God because of our sin. But because of Jesus and the truth of the gospel, justice has been done. Consequences have been levied on Jesus. We are now free from the confines of our sin to serve others because we're serving Jesus. It's been dealt with. Look look where he goes. I get so excited about what's coming next. Because he, he, he begins to move on a roll. So if submission is a gospel-centered focus to live lives that are seeking the salvation of those we serve, then he moves on to how we understand our own suffering and the challenges that that submission and servanthood will look as we step into living differently. Verse 80 says, finally, all of you, here's what he tells us to do as followers of Jesus Christ. So those who place their faith on that fixed point Here's where actions begin to speak of truth that the gospel gives us. Finally, all of you, unity of mind, sympathy, brotherly love, a tender heart, and a humble mind. Just imagine if we reflected on that as we lived our lives for Jesus. Is there unity of mind amongst brothers and sisters in Christ? Do I have sympathy for those who are hurting? Do I even care about their story so much so that I will pause my reaction to their said sin just to see if there's something going on in their life that's helping them make that decision? Let me just give you a quick example. 
Anybody ever struggle with road rage? Yes, you all have to raise your hand. It's time for confession. No, I'm just, but, but there are places where you're driving down the road, right? And someone won't let you in to merge or someone cuts you off. What's the first thing? You idiot. Don't you know what you're doing? Aren't you paying, like this anger swell. Like you have no idea what's going on in that person's life, but you have assumed that they are careless and callous and only doing what they want. And that might be true. Or they might be rushing to the hospital because a loved one is really sick and might not make it. You don't know. So sympathy, a level of care and concern for the value of another person that affects how you live your life. Like sinful independence, that marble that we're looking at challenges us away from our own self-focused desires and moves us to thinking about other people and caring about the status of their soul. Tenderness, humble mind, realizing what you've been saved from. And so now he spells it out. Don't repay evil for evil. You experience evilness. I mean, you, you got an emperor that's killing Christians, as Jared had mentioned. Like he's lighting them on fire to light the walkways of his dinner party. You, you talk about evil, that's evil. Don't repay evil for evil or reviling for reviling. But on the contrary, bless. For this is what you've been called to do that you may obtain a blessing. And then he moves to Psalm 34. This is the, the longest quote in the book of First Peter from the Old Testament. And you, you know what Psalm 34 is? Taste and see. Lord is good. He's reminding us that when we've ingested the truth of the gospel and its goodness and its sweetness, it absolutely affects everything else that we taste. If we allow the bitterness of the world to be that which we taste on a regular basis, everything tastes bitter. You taste of the gospel, you taste of the, you see and see that the Lord is good. You remember all of those places of his goodness in your life and how he's affected so many different things and loved you and, and given you so much beyond what you could imagine. It affects how you shape and see other people. In the crucible of life, we deliberately choose Christ-centered love. When things are hard, my guess is the Lord is addressing that marble. That it's an instrument. Hardness, suffering, challenge are tools by God to grow us into our understanding of what we're placing our most value in. And that fixed point of the cross is where he's reminding us to go back to. You've never gone too far where the cross isn't big enough for your sin. You've never made so many bad decisions that you couldn't come back to the fixed point of realizing that the mercy and love of Jesus Christ is specifically dispensed for you and allowing you to experience a freedom of love and relationship to, to live differently. So after he finishes up Psalm 34, taste and see that the Lord is good and that, that God cares about the righteous, that we're de deliberately living gospel-centered lives. Verse 13, he gives us this kind of challenge. He says, now who is there to harm you if you are zealous to do good? Seems like a great question. If I do good things, good things should happen, right? <laughs> Not always. But even if you should suffer for righteousness' sake, you will be blessed. Have no fear of them or be troubled. 
Same word as he was talking to these women about being fearless women and loving the fixed point of the cross so much that it changes how they interact with an unbelieving spouse. But in your hearts, and here's the critical point that I think really sets this entire portion, this entire chapter up. So verses 15 and 16, I think are the pivot point. So if you circle that and just think about what this looks like in your own life, it's going to force you to gaze on that blue marble, that sinful independence that you have in your own life, and realize that God is calling a transfer to take place away from your sinful independence towards a life of honoring Christ. Here's what he says. But in your hearts, honor Christ as Lord, Christ the Lord as holy, always be being prepared to make a defense to anyone who asks you for a reason for the hope that you have. Has anyone ever asked you that question? If not, why? Do, do we live lives in such a way that the hope that we have in Jesus exudes every pore? Where people are like, hey, I, I don't know what's going on, but something's different about what's taking place. You know, that's, that's the work of Jesus in our lives. And so what he tells us is that as we honor Christ, the Lord, as holy, we're prepared to make a defense to anyone who asks for the reason, the hope that we have. And, and, and then we cut off that verse. And here's what happens. We're so prepared to defend the truth of the gospel that we're not prepared to love those who disagree with it. Huh? <laughs> I mean, if you don't want to say amen, you can say ouch. That's fine too. Yeah, but that's true, right? I mean, we're so ready to give a defense for the gospel and we're not willing to love those who disagree with it to the point that we find ourselves rather holding to positions than caring about people. And Peter is driven in a culture that is persecuting the very faith that you and I have. The very faith that we believe in as we worship Jesus. And we did this morning and we sung songs about how beautiful his name is. Is it so beautiful to change how you live with those who hate you? Let me ask. That's where Peter's driving this. Is There's that sinful, raw independence that we look at and we say, I love Jesus. And I care so much about what he's doing in my life. And I care so much about what he's going to do in me. And then I leave this place and I meet someone who's rude, angry, says bad and nasty words to me, treats me horribly. And all of a sudden, Jesus and the truth of the gospel that we've sung takes a backseat and never thought of as, we see it as opposition almost every time, right? First Peter tells us to see it as an opportunity. There's a difference between an opposition and an opportunity. The opportunity is, I am so convinced of the power and the potency of Jesus Christ to change my life, for me to live as a way that represents Him, that every moment is an opportunity. Every moment of exposing my own sinful inclinations and tendencies is an opportunity to express the gentle love of Christ. But the verse does not end there. It says, yet, do it with gentleness and respect. You see where Peter moves these followers? You can scream from the mountaintops about the injustice that exists and legitimate injustice. They are being horribly mistreated. And yet what is different is they're doing it with gentleness and respect because they care about the salvation of those people that are opposing them. 
They want them to be saved. Not to just stop. They want them to come to the fixed point of who Jesus is. And, and here's how I know it, because this is what comes next, and I'll finish up here. For Christ also suffered once for sin. So he's drawing us back to the injustice of the cross, right? The theme that comes through chapter 3 is just a level of, at times when we look at sinful independence and the realization of people misunderstanding us and the challenges that we face, what we're going to see is there's going to be a level of injustice that's going to take place, a level of misunderstanding that's a part of the story. So he draws us to cross and said, who died to Christ, um, who suffered once for sin, the righteous for the unrighteous, that he might bring us to God, being put to death in the flesh, but made alive in the spirit, in which, and, and here's one of the challenging verses in this text, in which he went and proclaimed to the spirits in prison. Because they formerly did not obey when God's patience waited in the days of Noah when the ark was being prepared in which a few, that is eight persons, were brought safely through the water. Baptism, which corresponds to this, now saves you not as a removal of dirt from the body, but as an appeal to God for a good conscience through the resurrection of Jesus Christ, who has gone into heaven and is at the right hand of God with angels and authorities and all powers having been subjected or submitted to him. You want to look at submission, look at Jesus. There's a level of injustice that has taken place even in the years in which he walked this earth. And in the context that that injustice, which is just mind-boggling, was pre-planned for the redemption of the world. That there would be a level of which justice would have to take place, not just from a worldly standpoint, but from God's standpoint. Sin has to be dealt with. It's not something you sweep under the rug. And so this level of injustice then begins to set the parameters for how we think about moving forward. And so it moves us to talking about Jesus and preaching to the souls in prison. And I think what he's referring to, there's death and resurrection before his ascension, is likely this place where Jesus is declaring his triumph over all of those who did not believe and assuring victory for all of those who did. Like, this is an incredibly interesting point where where what we're getting is the triumph of Christ dispels and displaces all lingering senses of injustice. Let me carry this out just quickly because it's so important. My wife, she's amazing, love her to death. Uh, She's a, a label checker. Well, that's not accurate. She looks at expiration date. When you go shopping... Apparently, they have this little thing that's printed on boxes and cartons and chicken. And, and yeah, and you look and you, you think, okay, this is when the milk expires. I don't do that. <laughs> I see milk. I buy it. I put it in the cart. If it's expired, you just do what you got to do. So she looks at expiration dates to make sure that what they're saying is that this can't be used after this date. It's not good for you. Here's what I want to tell you. Evil has an expiration date. Evil has a shelf life. Injustice will come to an end. It does not exist in God's kingdom. God writes every wrong, every sin that has been done that you think has been left in secret is made aware to God the instant it takes place. And new, even as the motives were being moved to those things, you felt 
injustice. You will not have to live with that injustice because what Peter tells us is the cross triumphs over all injustice. There's no more lingering injustice that will exist. And so as we think about being citizens of heaven and operating differently, what we're saying to the world is I have sympathy for your pain. The plight and the injustice that you've experienced is totally significant and has so much value in shaping your story. But here's what I want you to know. I serve a God of the universe that will right every wrong and justice, injustice will not be your story because my God is triumphed. That's what happened. Jesus won and is winning. And so as we move into those places of struggling, whether it's from our homes to our work to the Oval Office or the government that we uh, abide under, we live as citizens of another kingdom. And there will be moments where we will have to bear injustice for the sake of the gospel. But we look to the cross, that fixed point, and what do we say to ourselves? God knows about injustice. He was innocent. He willingly went to the cross because he knew that you and I could not save ourselves. So if you can't save yourself, let's look at the marble. Just one last time. That sinful independence. If you truly believe the gospel, then what you're saying to yourself and what I'm saying to myself is, I need rescue. I cannot save myself. I cannot fix my situation, and my situation is not going to be fixed if my spouse was just nicer. <laughs> FYI. That's not the answer. The answer is deep, deeper gospel passion for the truth of what Jesus does in every area of life. Why do you think Peter addressed the three most common areas of people's journey? From government to work to home. He's saying the gospel penetrates all of those things. And going to force us to look at our sinful independence and realize that what we need, (laughs) more of Jesus. I so desperately, as a dad, want to represent to my young girls before they get married what to expect in a husband. To say there's a tenderness and how I love my wife is going to be a part of that story. The sympathy, the kindness the love and the passion for what Jesus is doing in my own life leads me to live differently with those around me. And so there is a place where we'll have to live and taste injustice and frustration at times. But I will want to tell you this. Evil has a shelf life. It has an expiration date. Because the God that we worship triumphed over Let's pray.